pray together as we prepare to open uh, the family book once again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this season, for the rejoicing and joy aspect of this season as we celebrate the coming into the world of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and look forward to his second coming in the clouds once again. Lord God, as we open your word together now, I pray for your help uh, for each and every one of us for understanding that you would illumine hearts and minds. Uh, Lord, you are uh, the one who has given us your word as a lamp to our feet. And so we pray, Lord, in a world that is dark in many ways, that uh, we would see the light, the light of the world, Jesus, ultimately, who is the subject matter of scripture. Lord God, be with us, and may, may you continue to transform us into the image of your Son for your namesake. Amen. Amen. Gary and Jessica were watching The Wizard of Oz. Gary had seen the movie before, but Jessica had not. And now came that climactic scene, I'm not sure if you've seen the movie, the climactic scene where Dorothy and her dog, Toto, uh, together with the scarecrow, the lion, and the tin man, are all gathered before the wizard. The wizard who appears very fearsome and very scary, cloaked as he is in smoke and fire and flashing lights, Jessica, who had never seen the movie before, was wondering in that moment, how are things going to pan out for the heroes as they stood there before the scary-looking wizard? But Gary had seen the movie already. Gary knew that in a couple of seconds, the dog Toto would run over to a curtain and pull open that curtain, and there behind the curtain would be a very ordinary-looking man working a bunch of levers and dials, speaking into a microphone. Gary knew the story. He knew that, in fact, there is no frightful and fearsome wizard. It was all just special effects and a smoke show being controlled by this guy behind the curtain. The heroes had nothing to be afraid of, after all. In Daniel chapter 8, God and his grace wants us to know the movie. God tells us here how things will go, how history will proceed until the second coming of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. And, and God desires for us to know that in an ultimate perspective, there's really nothing that his kids will encounter that is beyond his wise control. Do you know this morning that there is nothing to be afraid of? So let's come together to the text of scripture. If you have a Bible, you can pull the Pew Bible. If you'd like to follow along, we'll have the verses on screen. And let's go to Daniel 8, verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Now the vision which appeared to Daniel at the first is the vision of Daniel chapter seven. And remember that according to Daniel seven, verse one, Daniel had received that 
former vision in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. And so now the vision of Daniel 8 is given to Daniel two years later in Belshazzar's third year. Verse two, and I saw in the vision, there's lots of seeing here, and I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Now, most probably, it's in his vision that Daniel is at Susa, at Elam, at the Ulai Canal. Daniel is not actually physically there. In the vision, God has transported Daniel to this location in what is now southern Iran, about 350 kilometers east of Babylon. Now this is significant because at this point in the third year, remember, of Belshazzar's reign, Babylon is still the superpower of the world. But Daniel, in the vision, is transported to Persian territory, and of course, Persia is the power that would come after Babylon. Verse three, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, what? A ram standing on the bank of the canal. And this ram had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, if you have a Bible this morning, as we go through this chapter, we're going to be jumping around somewhat because later on in the chapter, the prophet Gabriel, or sorry, the angel Gabriel, not the prophet, the angel Gabriel gives straightforward interpretations as to what each animal symbolizes. And so here, for example, in verse three, we are helped by verse 20, where Gabriel tells da Daniel very explicitly that the ram of our verse and its two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. And we notice in verse three that one of the two horns on this ram is higher than the other. And what's being symbolized there is the fact that in the Medo-Persian kingdom, Persia took prominence over the Medes. Persia ended up as the higher, the more prominent of the two. In Daniel 4, sorry, verse 4, Daniel continues his report on this two-horned ram that is the Medo-Persian kingdom. He says, I saw the ram doing what? Charging. Just imagine the picture. Charging. <laughs> the galloping sound. Westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Now in its heyday, this ram, this ancient Persian empire, which Isaiah 41 verse two says was stirred up from the east, this kingdom asserted itself very forcefully in a westward direction into Babylon, into Syria, and into Asia Minor. 
and in a northward direction into Armenia and the Caspian Sea, the area around the Caspian Sea, and southward into Africa. This great Persian empire ruled over a vast, conquered territory as the ultimate superpower, and they ruled for around 200 years. Now, what is God doing in verse four? He's playing the movie that is our life on on this fallen earth. The rise to power and dominance of this two-horned ram kingdom for a season in world history, this is no anomaly. Kingdoms have risen, they have flexed their muscles like this, only later to fall to pieces for time immemorial this has happened. It's, it's like God is simply saying to us here in verse four, here's the world you live in until my son comes back. Please understand this. And speaking of this so-called mighty ram kingdom falling to pieces, let's go to verse five. As I was considering, behold, now what? A male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. Now friends, we can't help but notice, almost with a chuckle, that the animals here in Daniel 8 are domestic farm animals. A ram and a goat, both farmed back in this day. For for all the bluster of the ram, and for all the bravado of the goat, who we're going to talk about in just a moment, they are farm animals. And farm animals are controlled by a shepherd. As Richard Duguid says, he says, quote, like any good shepherd, the Lord is easily able to judge mere sheep and goats who step out of line and to put them back in their place, close quote. We need to understand that God is in full control of this ram and this goat, yes? This good God is in full control of your situation also, whatever that situation might be. He can be trusted in everything, in everything. But back to verse five, so suddenly this goat comes from the west so fast that it doesn't even touch the ground. He just flies in, in what Dale Davis has described as a blitzkrieg style. And, says verse five, the goat had a conspicuous, or it had a very obvious horn between his eyes. And and yet again here, friends, we are helped by the angel Gabriel, who says very clearly down in verse 21 that this goat is what? The king of Greece, and that the great horn between his eyes is the first king, aha! The first king of Greece, this great horn then, would be the Macedonian man, Alexander the Great, 
who lived for only 33 years. Alexander had been tutored by the Greek philosopher Aristotle, and Alexander was a military genius. He became general in the Greek army at the tender age of 21, figure it, 21, he becomes a general, and by the time he was only 26, he had swiftly, like a goat that doesn't even touch the ground, he had swiftly conquered vast swaths of land, of territory. By the time of his death, under mysterious circumstances, at the age of 33, Greek rule existed from Greece itself straight across to the western border of India. Very huge uh, area of land. And the legacy of Alexander's conquest was that the Greek language, the Greek culture, the Greek religion was now spread over a huge area of the world. And of course, in our western civilization, we owe much to the Greeks in terms of geometry, poetry, astronomy, mathematics, all sorts of things. But let's keep tracking the goat's movements in verses six and seven. This goat named Greece, with its great horn named Alexander, came to the ram with the two horns, which is the Medo-Persian kingdom, which had been standing, I had seen standing at the bank of the canal, and he, this goat named Greece and Alexander, ran at the ram, Medo-Persia, in his powerful wrath. So Greece now, coming at Persia. Verse seven, I saw him come close to the ram and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. So Greece now breaking Medo-Persia. And the ram had no power to stand before this goat, but he, the goat, cast him, cast the ram, down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. In 334 BC, Alexander the Great of Greece soundly defeated the Persian forces at the Granicus River in what is now Turkey. The goat with its great horn laid waste to the two-horned ram. Again, my friends, this is the movie we're in as we live in the time between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his second coming. And God is making sure that we know this. Don't be surprised when a strong kingdom rises and another one falls. Did you know that the United States of America is a temporary arrangement? Don't be surprised, these things are normal in a fallen world. Superpowers are only superpowers for a season, and then another flying goat comes in and destroys things. This is our world until Jesus returns. May we not be, may we not be 
fearful or surprised, but rather may we trust in the one, listen, trust in the one who gave Daniel this detailed prophecy of Persia and Greece hundreds of years before the events would unfold. That's our God. Now, if God has that kind of supernatural ability to lay out very accurately how world history will go hundreds of years before it happens, then maybe, just maybe, he's mighty and we should fear him and trust him. Verse eight, more rising and falling of kingdoms. Then the goat became exceedingly great. There's a lot of great and exceedingly great here, right? Human kingdoms, exceedingly great. But when he was strong, what happened? The great horn was broken, yes. Just as Alexander the Great was at the peak of his influence and power, he died very suddenly at the age of 33. The great horn was broken. And as Dale Davis says, it turns out, I love this, he says it turns out that great horns are mortal. And to demonstrate the truth of that fact, Davis tells the story of something that happened in the aftermath of the Nazi Nuremberg trials in 1946. So in October of that year, several big time Nazi leaders were executed for their war crimes and 14 of their bodies were cremated in Munich. On the 16th of October, 1946, a container that held the ashes of all 14 men was driven through the rain into the Bavarian countryside. And as Davis tells the story, he says, after an hour's drive, the vehicle stopped and the ashes were poured into a muddy ditch. And then Davis wants to get the point of this. He says this, five or six years before, these men could dominate and intimidate, but that night, a drizzle washed them away. It turns out, friends, that the great horns of this earth are mortal. Alexander the Great was the ruler of the world. But for human beings, that's always such a tenuous position, like it was for Hitler and his stooges. Suddenly, at 33, Alexander was snapped, broken, dead, and history went on. Without him, this is the movie <laughs> that we are in on this earth. As, as Davis puts it, superpowers are always tenuous affairs. And, says Daniel, he just goes on here, instead of it, instead of Alexander, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Indeed, as it would turn out, Alexander's Greek kingdom was divided up amongst his four generals. One of Alex Alexander's four generals, or, or one of the conspicuous horns here that rose to power after Alexander died was a person named Seleucus. I think I have that right, Seleucius. 
namesake of the Greek Seleucid dynasty of Syria. And it's Seleucus and his Seleucid dynasty that's referred to at the beginning of verse nine. Watch this. Out of one of them, that is out of one of those four horns that were just mentioned in verse eight, out of one of them came a what? Little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. Now we met a little horn in Daniel 7, didn't we? Who is, in Daniel 7, the Antichrist who will emerge prior to the return of Jesus Christ. Now in Daniel 8, we have another little horn. And this Daniel 8 little horn is different than the Daniel 7 version, but also makes us think of the Daniel 7 version. We know that this little horn of Daniel 8 that grows exceedingly great arises from the Seleucid side of things because the description of him that will follow perfectly and in detail matches a certain Seleucid king named Antiochus for Epiphanes who ruled from 175 BC to 163 BC. The little horn of Daniel 8 is the Seleucid king Antiochus for Epiphanes. Here in verse nine, just notice, he grows exceedingly great in three directions. Toward both the south and the east and also toward, significantly, the glorious land. Well, Antiochus for Epiphanes attacked Egypt to the south and Persia to the east and most notably for Daniel, Antiochus also, listen, savagely attacked the glorious land, otherwise known as Israel, the land of God's covenant people. Now friends, as we go through these next few verses, we'll try to flesh out a profile of this Antiochus as a sort of appetizer, just so that we can at least begin to understand what kind of person he was, I'll say this. First of all, this Antiochus was not even the legitimate heir to the throne when he began ruling. His nephew was. Second, Antiochus had new coins minted. And on those coins, he had the word Epiphanes printed along with his name, and Epiphanes means God manifest, or God revealed. So every time you grabbed a coffee at the ancient Near Eastern Tim Hortons and you pulled out your coins to pay for it, you'd be reminded, oh, oh yeah, our King Antiochus, he's God manifest. Our King Antiochus is the human form of our Olympian God, Zeus. And there were some in the land who thought that the word epiphanies, God manifest, should be changed to read epimanes, which means madman. But let's go, let's go now to verses 10 through 12 as we track through. It, meaning that little horn named Antiochus for epiphanies, 
grew great, there it is again, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression, and it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Now, probably these verses are not verses we're gonna find on a nice Christmas coffee mug, right? They're a little difficult. They're a little difficult to understand in, in some ways. One thing we have to wrestle with here is how to understand that word host, which appears four times in these verses. And the question is, does host refer to the angelic host of heaven, or does host refer to the earthly army of God's people? And I think the answer is, here in this passage, that the word can mean both. So for example, in verse 10, when Daniel reports that the little horn Antiochus grew great even to the host of heaven, he means that Antiochus grew so great that he almost appeared to have angelic stature. And then when he says next that Antiochus threw down some of the host and some of the stars, he's talking about Antiochus defeating and massacring the host of God's people on earth. And that word stars is used seven times in the Torah in Genesis through Deuteronomy to describe, listen, to describe the vast numbers of descendants that God would give through Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven, says God. So that stars here in Daniel 8.10 most likely refers to the offspring of Abraham, to the people of God, to the earthly host who are thrown down to the ground by this evil king, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And then with that first sentence of verse 11, if you look at verse 11 there, I think we're helped a little more if we switch here temporarily to another English rendering, which is the Christian Standard Bible, it says this, that the little horn Antiochus, listen, acted arrogantly even against the prince of the host or the prince of the heavenly army. In other words, Antiochus acted arrogantly even against God himself who commands the angelic host and such arrogance, friends, is always very ill-advised. And then in verse 12, we have the fourth and final use of the word host. They're describing the earthly army of God's people. A host of people are given over to Antiochus. And as we attempt to make sense of these verses, we also notice the repetition of the phrase regular burnt offering. You see that in verses 11 
And again in verse 12. In verse 11, the regular burnt offering is taken away from the prince of the host. It's taken away from God and from God's sanctuary. And God's sanctuary, his, his temple in Jerusalem, in other words, is overthrown. And in verse 12, the regular burnt offering is given to Antiochus. The regular burnt offering was the daily animal sacrifice that the Jewish people gave to God in their devotion to him at the temple. Antiochus took this offering away from the people and from God who regularly received it and Antiochus overthrew the temple itself. Listen, friends. History records that this Antiochus did the following. He granted the high priesthood in Jerusalem to the candidate who paid him the most money. He outlawed circumcision throughout the land. He savagely executed tens of thousands of inhabitants there in the Holy Land, at one point killing thousands who had assembled for worship on the Sabbath. He also looted gold and furniture from the temple. He rededicated the Jerusalem temple to his god Zeus and set up a statue of Zeus in the temple. And he blasphemed God and enraged the Jewish people by sacrificing a pig on the altar. Antiochus was a power-hungry, bloodthirsty, cruel, insane tyrant of the worst kind who persecuted God's people unlike any who had ever been on the earth. Antiochus hated the fact, hated the fact that God was the center of gravity for the Jewish people. He wanted to be the center of gravity. After all, he was Epiphanes, God manifest. And so he destroyed anything and everything that got in the way of that very sick exaltation. Notice in verse 12, the phrase, it will throw truth to the ground. That is, the little horn Antiochus would throw truth to the ground. One of the things he also did was to strictly, strictly forbid Jewish people from having scrolls or copies of the law of God. Every Jewish home was searched on a monthly basis, and any copies of the law that were found were shredded and burned, and the owners of those scrolls were executed. Antiochus threw truth to the ground. And so if Daniel 7, that we were in last week, if that chapter describes the Antichrist who will come future to us, Daniel 8 describes a historical figure, Antiochus, who was one of many antichrists who have already arisen throughout the history of the world, 1 John 2.18. Antiochus, we can take him as a sort of prototype of what the antichrist in the final days will be like. 
and act like. Now let's go to verse 13. We're gonna go through these next verses a little quicker. In verse 13, Daniel hears two angels talking with one another, two angels talking with one another. Then I heard a holy one speaking, an angel, and another holy one, another angel, said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? Now friends, there is some sweetness here. At several points in the Psalms, suffering people cry out to God, how long, O Lord? But here notice, it's an angel who asks, how long? How long must these human kids of God's suffer this transgression that makes desolate, that is being perpetrated by this madman, Antiochus. And as Dale Davis says, I think he's right, he says it's almost as if heaven's legions enter sympathetically into the anguish and duress of God's earthly people. It's beautiful. Going forward to verse 14. Notice that instead of one angel answering the other angel who had asked the question, it's interesting, the angel's answer comes directly to Daniel. And he said to me, to Daniel, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's how long, then the sanctuary, God's Jerusalem temple, shall be restored to its rightful State. Now, 2,300 evenings and mornings, that's a rather long amount of time, isn't it? But notice also, 2,300 evenings and mornings is not 2,301 evenings and mornings or 2,400 evenings and mornings, it's 2,300 precisely. That is, the time period of Antiochus's desecration of the temple was a strictly, precisely limited time period. Yes? That was sovereignly decreed and enforced by who? By God. The desecration did not go on forever. It came to an end in 164 BC. Verses 15 and 16, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So even the prophet Daniel doesn't quite get it, right? And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice, presumably now Daniel hears God's voice. I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli by the canal there, and it called Gabriel. I don't know how the voice sounded, but probably majestic. Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Notice that the man's voice commands the elite angel, Gabriel, which is why we think the voice is God's voice. Because after all, who can speak commandingly like to a, to a great angel like this? Only God can. Verse 17, so, 
the angel Gabriel, came near where I stood. Now, imagine this. Gabriel is only one of two angels that are named, along with Michael, in the entire Bible. Gabriel is something (laughs) as an angel. He came near to where Daniel stood. And notice Daniel, he's quite simply overcome at the sight of mighty Gabriel. When he came, says Daniel, I was frightened, I bet you were, and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, O human, that the vision is for the time of the end. And here the phrase, the end, is referring to the end of the days of Antiochus for Epiphanes, which was still almost 400 years forward from the time of Daniel. Daniel is overwhelmed here, he's, he's woozy. Verse 18, watch this. And when he had spoken to me, I fell <laughs> into a deep sleep with my with my face to the ground. Did Daniel simply faint here? Maybe his way of saying that. But the angel Gabriel touched me and made me stand up. He said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. And then in verses 20 through 22, we have those interpretations that we touched on earlier concerning the ram and the goat, and Alexander the great horn on the goat and his four generals who succeeded him. And then in verses 23 through 25, we have Gabriel's interpretation, friends, of the little horn, Antiochus. And at the latter end of their kingdom, that is the kingdom of the four Greek generals, when the transgressors have reached their limit, A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. Now Antiochus IV Epiphanes is the king of bold face who understands riddles here. And Gabriel says that he would arise on the scene, listen, when the transgressors have reached their limit. And the question is, what limit are we talking about and who sets the limit? What Gabriel says here reminds us a lot, actually, of Genesis 15, 16, where God talked there about the Amorites, the Canaanites, reaching a completion point in their iniquity, at which time God would judge them. God, listen, God sovereignly sets limits limit points that he determines for the sin of human beings. And when that limit point is reached, God's judgment falls. Here in Daniel 8.23, there would come a time future to Daniel when the transgression meter for the Greek kingdom would be peaking out And just prior to its time of peaking out, Antiochus 
would emerge on the scene. He would be a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, which could also be translated as something like this. A hard-nosed king who's into sinister schemes or deceitful strategies. Verses 24 and 25, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Now that's interesting. Is this describing how Antiochus was actually controlled by the spiritual forces of evil that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter six? Great power, but not by his own power. Gabriel continues, he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper, deceit prosper under his hand and his, in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many without warning, just as Antiochus did do that day when he slayed all those unsuspecting people who had gathered for worship on the Sabbath. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, against God. And watch this, what happens? He shall be broken. How? But by no human hand. This is the movie called Human History between the resurrection of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Scary, evil rulers and kingdoms arise and then they are broken. Wicked Antiochus was broken but by no human hand. Here's what happened. One day in 164 BC, Antiochus was retreating from Persia, from a battle there. And as he did, he was struck with what Sinclair Ferguson calls an exceedingly painful disease, which was accompanied by deep and unmitigated psychological anguish. Antiochus died. God snapped him off. All that evil, all that sacrilege, all that horror that Antiochus had unleashed ended that very day. But as we said, friends, Daniel lived about 400 years before those events would happen. Daniel would not have known the names Antiochus or Alexander the Great. And Gabriel's final word to Daniel in verse 26 is this, listen, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, Daniel, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. So Gabriel wants Daniel to preserve this vision, right? To write it down, secure it, because in about 400 years, it's going to have astounding relevance to the people of God as they found themselves now suffering under that harsh tyrant, Antiochus. My friends, God in his merciful grace and goodness prepares his people for the trouble that they will endure down the line. 
He knows the whole movie, amen? He knows that the the scary-looking wizard has no clothes. Daniel's vision must be sealed up, must be preserved so that it can be pulled out in 400 years and God's suffering people can see how powerfully great God is to have given this detailed vision of their experience 400 years before it ever happened and being encouraged from the vision also that Antiochus's evil and his life were sovereignly limited and would come to an end. Now, I think you might agree that this Daniel 8 vision definitely has some very disturbing elements about it, doesn't it? I mean, it just does. Which is why we can empathize (laughs) and we can resonate, I think, at least I do, with Daniel in our final verse, verse 27. And I, Daniel, was what? I was overcome, I was overcome. And I lay sick, not just for 10 minutes, but for some days. Daniel's just wiped out after receiving this troubling vision from God. He's emotionally distressed concerning this prophecy of God's people who will suffer so violently, his people, Daniel's people, suffer so violently at the hands of this little horn. And he lays sick in bed for days. We can understand this, can't we? We can empathize with Daniel here. Human beings can only handle so much, amen? But friends, I want you to notice what Daniel says next (laughs) because it's so very important for us. Then what happened? I rose from bed and did what? Went about the king's business. Wow, (laughs) as Chris Wright puts it, Daniel went back to the office. Daniel went back to his desk. He went back to his day job there in Babylon. He just received, think of it, he just received this frightening technicolor vision about the future that had laid him up in bed sick for many days, but then he gets up, And he goes back to answering phones, replying to emails, back to changing diapers, back to grocery shopping, back to teaching students, back to caring for an elderly neighbor, back to school, back to making breakfasts and lunches. As Chris Wright says, quote, instead of going around ranting like some wild prophet of doom and setting up lucrative end times ministry uh, complete with a website, movie, and books, Daniel just simply went back to his routine. He went about the king's business. Well, God tells us in the 66 books of his word how things are going to be. What do we do? We go to work, yes? We go to soccer, we plant a garden. We live faithfully to God in whatever we do, always looking for opportunities no matter where we are to be salt and light. We live at peace because we are a people who know the whole movie, amen? 
We know that God is sovereign. We know that human empires won't last. We know that God will usher in his end to his history in his way, in his time. That's for sure. And we go about the king's business. Daniel says that he went about the king's business, but he says, I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Daniel didn't have all the details sorted out, and neither do we. Daniel felt unsettled by the vision, but still, notice carefully, he went about the king's business. Daniel lived faithfully, Daniel lived with integrity, despite his uncertainties, because Daniel knew that ultimately, the king of all kings will win. Now let's wrap this up. In his astonishing hubris, as we have seen, Antiochus called himself Epiphanes. God manifest, and he desecrated the temple of God. Well, about 170 years after Antiochus, an infant was presented before the Lord by his parents at the Jerusalem temple. That baby was named Jesus. And Jesus doesn't pretend like Antiochus to be God-manifest. Jesus is God-manifest. He was crucified, and his murderers thought at that point that the movie was over. But it wasn't. All along, it was God's movie, and through the evil of the cross, God did what? He won a great redemptive victory, raising his son three days later for his people, the justification of his people, and then seated him at the right hand, and Jesus, God manifest, God incarnate in human flesh, the risen one with nail scars on his hands and on his feet, will come again in the clouds. Kingdoms and little horns will come and they will go. They will rise and they will fall until that day when he returns. And if he is for us, then none can be against us. And my friend, if you haven't yet met this living Jesus, I'd be more than happy to speak with you at the close of the service. But for now, let's pray. Our good Father, Loving Father, faithful Father, mighty Father, we praise you and thank you for your plan. You so loved the world that you sent your Son, and Jesus came willingly to be born that first Christmas, to live and to die, to be raised, to be ascended, seated at the right hand of the Father, and who will come again for us. Lord God, we thank you for the movie that you have orchestrated and are orchestrating, and we know the ending and we praise you. Lord God, give us all peace this week as we go into the world about the king's business. In Jesus' name, amen.